Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast found at the intersection of spiritual quest and scholarly inquiry, and coming to you from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. Welcome to the final episode of our three-part series, A Great Religious Experiment, Military Chaplaincy. I'm Jonathan Eder, host of Seekers and Scholars. In this episode, we rejoin Dr. Ronit Stahl to continue a discussion on the quest for pluralism in military chaplaincy. We'll be looking at the inclusion of women in military ministry, as well as the state of the chaplaincy today. Dr. Stahl is the author of Enlisting Faith, How the Military Chaplaincy Shaped Religion and State in Modern America, published by Harvard University Press in 2017. Stahl was a research fellow at the Mary Baker Eddy Library in 2012. A fascinating part of the, the chaplaincy story is the embrace of women within its, its ranks. But I, I didn't realize that there was an interest in this that predated when, in the 1970s, the, the military accepted women into, the, uh, into chaplain service. Yes. So, Ronit, this is what you write in your book. Quote, After enlisting in the Women's Auxiliary Army Corps, later the Women's Army Corps or WAC, Mary Elizabeth Dibble wrote to the Christian Science Board of Directors, noting the need of spiritual aid and divine guidance among her fellow service women. Wanting to be of the greatest service possible, she asked if I might not be of greater use to the Christian Science Movement as a chaplain. Dibble was probably disappointed by the response she received. The men running the military chaplaincy could scarcely imagine how civilian women could serve as chaplains. This was really one of my favorite archival finds at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Oh, great. I mean, one of the really, you know, you never know what you're going to find when you go into an archive. Um, and this was just truly delightful because, you know, I had long wondered that this is a very male space. I mean, the military in general is a very male space, but the chaplaincy was until the 1970s an entirely male space. Mm-hmm. Um, and and women were really on the periphery. As, there are a lot of mothers writing to the chaplaincy. There are wives who care about what's happening in the chaplaincy, but they're not, you know, the core of either the people who make up, who comprise the chaplaincy, or the people they're serving, the personnel they're serving. So this example was a wonderful find because it articulated very clearly that for women who entered the military in World War II, and this could be through the whack or the wave, so actually serving in the military, or, you know, there are also a lot of women who were civilians working as code breakers and other military support roles in this time. And what did they want? So what did they see? And how did they understand um, religious life in this space? And the Christian Science Church is, you know, really ahead of many other religious bodies in the United States, especially at this time, in having women as religious authorities and religious leaders. And, and I think this gets at why it's so important to really have a full view of the religious diversity of the military chaplaincy, because this was something a Christian science woman could articulate that few other women in America could have 
because chaplains were religious leaders. They were clergy. So there weren't that many spaces where you had women in these roles to even have what to the military was an audacious and frankly somewhat ridiculous Mm. notion. But for a Christian scientist, wasn't, right? right? And so, you know, that's part of the huge gap here of how people conceive of religious authority and leadership. And it takes someone like a Christian science woman saying, wait a second, I know about women in religious leadership positions. I can be a religious leader. How about in this space where we're now seeing a growing population of women serving? And this is one of these moments where it's not transformative at the time. Nothing changes in the moment. Again, for the military, this is just like, what are you even talking about? And I want to say, you know, there are many ways in which the leadership of the military chaplaincy was sophisticated and thoughtful and very cognizant of religious diversity in some dimensions. But again, these were men who generally were coming from religious traditions where there were not women leaders. Mm -hmm. And so this to them was preposterous. And in fact, the actual shift in the chaplaincy itself is not an internal decision. It's not that the chaplaincy decides, oh, maybe we should incorporate women as chaplains. It's an order, right? It comes in the 1970s, first in the Navy, from Chief of Naval, Naval Operations, Elmo Zumwalt, mm-hmm. who, as part of his efforts to expand both the uh, racial diversity and and uh, equal opportunity within the military says all staff corps have to be open to women. So he says to the to the chief of chaplains, like, you need to find women. Uh-huh. This is really important because it shows how changes in the chaplaincy can come from both inside and outside. And in the case of women, it really comes from outside. We see that initial push from Christian scientists in the 1940s doesn't necessarily go anywhere. And it then takes someone in the military, but not in the chaplaincy in the 1970s to say, okay, now we're going to have women. And so suddenly the chiefs of chaplains have to find women and they have to find women who can meet the chaplaincy's requirements, which had long involved a certain amount of education, but also ordination and, and the endorsement of a religious body. Now, groups like Christian scientists and Mormons had worked out different accommodations because these are two groups that don't sort of ordain clergy in the way that um, many other religious groups do. But the, the percentage of women clergy in the United States in the 1970s was extraordinarily small. Mm. So there's a very, very limited pool mm. um, for the military to look at when it needs to suddenly find women chaplains. And so then as it does start to find women chaplains, it also becomes an opportunity for women within religious spaces to see the military as a venue of opportunity for their own leadership to serve, you know, a different type of congregation. And depending on the denomination, you know, this was sometimes more of an opportunity than than pulpits Mm. civilian pulpits. Ronit, since you had your research fellowship here at the Mary Baker Eddy Library, uh, and this is actually fairly recently, we've begun an oral history project, and it's involved interviewing various people about their experience in different dimensions of the Christian science movement. But some of those interviews have been conducted with former Christian science military chaplains. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind listening 
to a couple of clips and just seeing what you think about them. Uh, would that be okay, Ronit? I'd be happy to. So these clips are from an interview with Air Force Chaplain Therese Terrier Erickson. She began her career as a military chaplain in 1983. In the first clip, Terry Erickson discusses what she faced as a candidate to become a military chaplain. The church invited me up to uh, go through a series of interviews that was very clear to me that they really were not looking for a woman to become a Christian science chaplain. One of the interviewers was cute. He said, have you asked your father about this? And I thought, well, I don't live with my father. Another one said, I want you to be very clear that the enlisted men do not like officers, and they don't like chaplains, and they don't like women. And you need to be very clear about that. And then there was a third one who made a similar point. And uh, when I was done with those three interviews, I thought to myself, I'm not going to do this because I really wasn't trying to push women forward. I was just trying to follow God's lead. And so I walked into the office of a woman who was not one of the interviewers. And she asked me, what were your motives for applying? And I went back to my love for God, church, um, wanting to pray for others and wanting to serve our church and the world. And she said, those are exactly the right motives. You need to stick with that. So I moved forward with my decision to be a Christian science chaplain. I received a call from one of these uh, men from the mother church, and he asked me to close the door, and he asked if I was really thinking of doing it. And I said, yes, I am really thinking of being a chaplain candidate and a chaplain. And he hung up the phone. <laughs> but I knew at that point I was going to uh, go ahead with it. So they accepted me in the program. There were only two of us in the program at the time. The other gentleman was a man. Every single week when I met with the endorser, he would say hi to the man and he would ask me if I was still committed. And he did that for three years. I knew that if I didn't make it through the training program, that would probably be the end of the road for women in the training program. Yeah, so that was uh, Chaplain Terry Erickson. And interestingly, you know, she refers to the endorser questioning her um, as to whether she was going to stay in the program. But she currently is the endorser for Christian Science <laughs> Military Chaplain. So things definitely did change. So, yeah, just curious, um, what kind of thoughts come to mind when you listen to her comments about that initial experience of pursuing uh, work as a, as a Christian Science Military Chaplain? First of all, it aligns with so many of the experiences of women that I've read about who you know, did feel some sense of a call to serve. And in many ways, the biggest obstacle was their own, you know, endorser or getting through mm. sort of their own community to reach the military. And, you know, ironically, of course, this is at a time when the military is at least at the level administratively, you know, seeking women. And and her points that people were trying to dissuade her because enlisted men didn't like chaplains, didn't like women, 
culturally, you know, the space of the military remained quite masculine. And yet, you know, again, the early 1980s is the moment when suddenly the ability for women to serve in in all non-combat units is on the horizon and then happening. And so it is this space of tremendous change. So to enter that space is hard, and yet women were determined to do so. This also echoes a lot of the women um, whose uh, papers I looked at, especially who entered the chaplaincy in the 1970s and early 1980s. They didn't perceive it as a feminist move, even though many outside either supporters or antagonists thought it was, but for them, it was just the right move for themselves. And it did have larger implications, but that the, you know, the work they understood themselves doing was following um, a path that made sense to them. I also think it speaks to, you know, the just different types of obstacles. And then at the same time, the amount of tenacity and perseverance it took for women um, to enter the chaplaincy in this period. And then, you know, as you point out, the trajectory of someone who is initially rebuffed by an endorser who ultimately becomes the endorser, (laughs) you know, I think that's, you know, that's really important. And it's also parallel in certain ways, I think, to the role that Chief of Chaplains Matthew Zimmerman, who's the first African-American Army Chief of Chaplains, takes, which is to say he takes on that role with the entirety of his experiences in his career in mind. And he then becomes quite determined, again, to um, expand the religious diversity, the racial diversity, to get more women into the chaplaincy. So, you know, it matters to have people in positions of power people who have had these experiences and have overcome them. Well, I'd like to follow up with Chaplain Erickson's career uh, and and bring us to a moment when she is serving and where she's facing really challenges within the military and facing people who are really trying to push her out. And this comes in the context of an assignment they give her. The base where I was at had a medium security prison with 199 men, a good fourth of them or more were in for sex problems. And my boss decided I would be the sole chaplain in the middle of that medium security prison. So my office was in the middle of 199 men. A friend of mine thought he did it to try to help me out, that this would be the final kick. <laughs> and so I went in there, and the first day, In my office, a man came in with buttons down, legs spread, and I took him seriously, and and I told him how I could help him through prayer, and I said it with love and through considering other ways to think about women. He realized I wasn't going to be disturbed by this and that I felt I had something to give, and word must have gone out because nobody ever came into my prison to abuse my presence there again. They came in with real issues, but never to abuse. The first day I also learned that the commander had changed his decision, longstanding decision, and decided that inmates could no longer be uh, escorted to the chapel and sing in the choir. And, And that the inmates were so upset, they were calling the commander um, a devil worshiper. 
And so the last night of the choir, I went into these, this group of about five men, and I said to them, Jesus said, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So if you give me true motives, true facts, true prayers, I'll take care of the situation. And that night I prayed deeply so that I would have true facts, true motives, and true prayers. And so I went back to my office the next day, and the commander had not spoken to me yet, but he saw me a distance down the hall, and he called me into his office, and he said, I'm leaving for a vacation, but I like the way you think, and I'd like you to tell me what you think about the decision I made. And so I gave him true facts, how everybody would be blessed by a continuation of the program and true motives. And he reversed the decision. I went to these men and I said, this is how we're going to handle things in the brig from here on out. No name calling, but through true prayers, true facts, true motives. Um, I had the men in the palm of my hand at that point. I was able to start a, a men's group where we were bringing civilian men in who could really help these guys see good role models. And then on top of that, I started this videoing inmates talking about making right decisions. And then we would use those videos and bring them into adult education classes for airmen to help prevent them from making bad decisions. And uh, at some point, I received a call from a two-star general saying he wanted to make this go Air Force-wide. So when I left that job, instead of it being the end of me, I was picked up to major. And I was not only picked up, but I was put in a position where I was sent to an elite military school that only accepts four chaplains per year. So I, I was so struck by that story, Rooney. It was fascinating to listen to and really seems to me to epitomize the way in which women who entered these very male spaces and did so under a lot of scrutiny and, you know, not always backed by everyone around them, often did tremendous work turning obstacles into opportunities. Mm. And and that that sense of opportunity was not sim was not personal, right? It was as 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 she tells the story, right? It's about creating opportunities for the men in this space yeah. and to improve their futures. And so it wasn't, and it had, right? This it, it it turned out then to be advantageous to her, but that wasn't the motivation. The motivation was how do you you know make this system work better for the people around around her that she was serving. And I think it's also, therefore, a testament to the extraordinary religious, emotional, and administrative sort of intelligence that was required to work in these spaces, right? Mm -hmm. She understood, like, she had a sense of what religious needs were and how to answer them. She understood the very different populations of, you know, the prisoners and then the other authorities she's working with. And then also understood administratively how the system worked mm -hmm. and th therefore how she could work within it. Renita, when you think about the chaplaincy today, how do you think of it in 2018? 
I think the task and the goals of the chaplaincy remain the same. Mm. Um, it's all centered around this question of how do you serve mm-hmm. everyone in the military, but who serves in the military and who serves in the chaplaincy, these are dynamic, these are changing. And so I do think there are really some big challenges for the chaplaincy in this moment. And I think it's really that tension between pluralism and what um, was long called sectarianism. And I, I know that's a term that often makes people skittish, but but really the the tension between that pluralist vision and the particularity of religious traditions that some want to hew to and the challenge for the chaplaincy as a result is in some ways the same challenge in new forms, but how do you manage this space in which people's vision of what religion looks like can be different? How do you manage a chaplain corps that is comprised of people, some from uh, faiths that really value pluralism and some that don't? Mm-hmm. And as the you know the chaplain corps has expanded and diversified, and so has the American population. Right. Um, and one of the, you know the challenges is is keeping up. And as the American military now includes also a large number of people who very clearly self-identify as you know humanist or agnostic or not religious, mm-hmm. how does that work? It's a huge challenge for the chaplaincy. But the thing I've seen as I've given talks and talked to people about my book is a keen interest in working through this challenge. Mm-hmm. And there are some people both inside and outside of the chaplaincy who who wish the chaplaincy were not committed to pluralism. But there's a much larger group of people who really do hold and honor this commitment to pluralism, Mm -hmm. but recognize that that is a commitment that is hard. Yeah. It's a hard commitment to hold, and it's a hard commitment to to work out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, much like the chaplains who found a way to serve soldiers in Vietnam, even as they detested the war itself, Mm -hmm. um, I really admire the chaplains and the people within the chaplain corps who are committed to pluralism, even when it challenges sometimes their own faith and their own commitments, but are dedicated to the vision because it matters for the institution and for the people within it. And I look forward to watching as they figure this out. Well, thank you for being such a wonderful observer and chronicler of United States military ministry. Thanks so much, Ronit. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for part three of this series on a great religious experiment, military chaplaincy. It's been wonderful engaging with Dr. Ronit Stahl, author of Enlisting Faith, How the Military Chaplaincy Shaped Religion and State in Modern America. Together, we explored the social, political, as well as religious dimensions of military chaplaincy in its relationship to the quest for pluralism within American culture overall. Through Dr. Stahl's stewardship and scholarship, we saw how, over the last century, the experiment of military chaplaincy has provided results that demonstrate how cultural and religious diversity can come together in serving a common purpose. In this series, we also featured clips from interviews with former Christian Science military chaplains. These had been conducted as part of 
the Mary Baker Eddy Library Oral History Project. Here at Seekers and Scholars, we're always interested in hearing from you, our audience. That's why we're here. We're here for you. If you'd like to be in touch with us with any of your thoughts or questions, we invite you to email us at podcast at mbelibrary.org. So to preview what's upcoming for Seekers and Scholars, next month we will debut the first episode in what will be an ongoing and intermittent series about what is inspiring and motivating today's hymn writers, titled Inside Contemporary Hymnody. The series will showcase the work and ideas of 21st century hymn creators and hymnologists. I will be co-hosting the series with Dr. Ryan Vigil. Dr. Vigil is Associate Product Manager at the Christian Science Publishing Society and was hymn specialist for the Publishing Society in its development of a new volume of hymns published just last year in 2017. Our first episode of Inside Contemporary Hymnody features a discussion in English with French poet and hymnist Josette Flamand. Flamand has a piece in the new Christian Science Hymnal, which is set to music by Gabrielle Faure. Her work reflects themes around migration and refuge, important issues in today's world and in contemporary hymnody, and a fitting theme, we thought, for the holiday season. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2018.